Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey. Hey. How's it going? It's okay. Uh, let's just come out and say it. Today we're talking about the New Deal. Yeah. But I want to talk about the reason why. I mean, I think you're a health expert, but I think one of the things that we know for sure is that health is connected to everything else in the world and also an indicator of many other things in the world. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it correlates almost directly with wealth. Really? Yeah, actually, I'd say directly. Yeah, longevity, rates of chronic disease, um, who's being affected most by by coronavirus now. It's not a new trend. It is predictable. When people have steady incomes and jobs and roofs over their heads and access to good food and safe communities, they live longer. And what the term in public health is social determinants of health. Some mm-hmm. people say structural determinants of health. And in the last 10 years, that's really gotten a lot of attention. But um, for the decades before that, it was pretty much neglected. Uh, as a as a concept. Mm-hmm. But if you look back at the World Health Organization, the 1940s, mm-hmm. they clearly laid that out in, in their founding documents and in their philosophy that you, you can't, this is not a medical system we're building. We are building societies that create health. Right, right. You know, we talked about Ahmaud Arbery a couple of weeks ago with Adam Serwer. And, you know, he was saying that coronavirus and a shooting like this may not seem connected, but they actually are because of these structural issues. Like we see people of color dying at much higher rates. Um, We see poorer people dying at much higher rates from coronavirus than wealthier people. All of these things are part of the same structural system. I mean, obviously what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis this week and the protests that are coming out of that as a doctor like how do how do you think about yeah police brutality how do you think about that in terms of health i've written about this before that there are most of these chronic conditions which kill most of us uh, heart disease and hypertension we have strokes we have heart attacks mm-hmm. um we develop diabetes these are all the result of many small insults and you don't get heart disease because you had one, you know, bad meal or because mm-hmm. you went a few days without leaving your couch. It's, it's a life mm-hmm. and it's a result of chronic exposure to these things and chronic stresses, micro stresses, and they end up culminating in catastrophic events. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me exactly what is playing out right now in, in national news that the killing of a single person sets a, a, the world into motion as a, a culminating event of a long history. You know. Right. That's interesting to think about our social justice issues as how we don't invest in prevention. <laughs> we only pay attention when things reach a crisis and yeah. when, in fact, there are these underlying issues every day. Right. But in a very direct way. Okay, so that's the metaphorical version, but also in a very direct way. Like, 
we've been talking about, you know, the risk factors for dying of coronavirus and all of the, quote, underlying health conditions and things. And as you're saying, underlying health conditions are are many of them indicators of uh, a lifetime of small stresses, right? Small or large stresses. And yeah. if you live with the fear or knowledge that you are vulnerable to police violence, for instance if you live with discrimination every day, that shows up in your health, right? Yeah. There's this concept, John Henryism. It's coined by Sherman James, who has taught me about it. He's a professor uh, emeritus. He was at Emory for a while. And this concept of John Henryism, mm-hmm. where there there is this sort of the effect of striving, the extra work that has to be put in, um, so, so there's there's worrying about things that other people don't need to worry about if you're not part of a marginalized population that adds, adds stress to you, but also just the added effort of trying to of needing to work that much harder also has cumulative health effects um, right. when the playing field isn't level and people say, well, you got to you know you got to work that much harder, put that much more in, and uh, even if you believe that that can allow you to achieve the same outcomes and life as someone not in a marginalized population, then you that still will have effects on you because you had to work that that much harder. Right, right. So all of this to say this is to say inequality is a health problem. Uh, health metrics can be an indicator of inequality in society. And then the other thing I've been thinking about is what Jim Fallows told us uh the other day, which is look to history. So what we're going to try to do today is look at the New Deal, which was a period where a lot of reforms were made that were pretty dramatic. That, that's what we're going to try to do today is, is talk about the New Deal, look back at history and, you know, is there anything we can learn from how the New Deal came to be that could be useful for today when we face a health crisis that is also a crisis of inequality. You keep wanting to look back to history for lessons or something. <laughs> if Jim T- Fallows tells you to do something, you do it. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm all about staying in the present. <laughs> so we're calling Elizabeth Cohen. She's a professor of history at Harvard University, and she's written a piece for us about this very this very subject. <laughs> Hi, Liz. This is Jim. Hi, Jim. Thank Thanks you for, for, for talking time with for us. us. Oh, my pleasure. This is how we do the interview. We talk, we both talk at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> we ask the same question. And then I'll join in. Yeah. And it'll be all three of us. <laughs> um, how are you? I'm okay. I uh, made it through the semester, which is an accomplishment, given that most of it was on Zoom. Yeah. Right. Um, can I ask you to introduce yourself for our audience? Yes. Uh, my name is Liz Cohen. I'm a historian of the 20th century. I teach at Harvard in the history department. And so, you know, so many people are com- kind of trying to make connections between the Depression and today. And I'm curious, uh, what are the parallels you see, or do you think it's a very different time? Well, you know, learning from history is always complicated. Mm-hmm. 
it's not really valid to say that history repeats itself. Um, circumstances are always different, but there are lessons to learn. Um, and they're more on the level of the kinds of commitments, um, the strategies broadly employed, not so much the nitty gritty of this program versus that program. Got it. You know, I mean, we talk a lot about unemployment, for instance, being like, you know, we've never seen this high of unemployment since the Great Depression. Does that mean these times are similar? Well, there, there, are, there are important differences to say uh, before we acknowledge that uh, 25% of the American workforce was unemployed in 1933 when Franklin Roosevelt became president. And the latest statistics I just saw today suggest that we're getting close to a quarter of the workforce uh, being unemployed today. So obviously that's similar, but we have to remind ourselves that this has happened over, what, two and a half months and mm -hmm. it took many years to get to that point in the Great Depression. So, you know, that was a gradual disaster. This is one that's hit us very fast. Right. And we are also laboring under a medical emergency right. where, you know, many of the things we might have done are constrained by the fact that we are quarantined and trying to a social distance and so forth. Right. It's like the jobs that could be created are in fact. Yeah. I mean, one of the important comparisons I think to make between with today is that from the very first speeches that Roosevelt gave at his inauguration, for example, he talked about the importance of getting people back to work. They thought about consumption and the importance of people having enough money to spend and to rev up the economy that way. But they were very clear that jobs were the way to get there. Right. Most of the New Deal uh, programs, particularly at the early side, um, were oriented towards creating jobs. And we don't hear that today because we're really living in an economy that is so oriented around consumption. So before the, the collapse, 70% of GDP was uh, consumption related. Um, and so it's not a surprise that, you know, what did our Congress do but give people money to spend, but not actually put a jobs program into place? Though some of the CARES uh, money does require people being kept on the payroll. So to some extent, that's the case. But it's a very different orientation today. Um, and we have a very different economy. People were working in manufacturing and big plants. Today, we have this gig economy where work is defined in um, lots of unusual ways that would be unrecognizable in the 1930s. So uh, you know, our economy looks very different. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that so much of our money now is spent on consuming. That was that that not the case. It, it, well, not at it wasn't. You know, I mean, certainly people were buying things, and you see that in the early uh, New Deal, but nothing like the way we view it today. And it really took the Keynesian Revolution of the late 1930s that we should, in fact, in a recession or depression, run a deficit. We should prime the pump. That would be the way to get the economy back. And so by the late 1930s, that's what they embraced. And then 
by the post-war period, uh, it did lead to enormous prosperity. But part of the reason for that um, was that we had a much more progressive tax structure. Um, and so there was much more redistribution of wealth. We did not have the inequality of um, income and wealth that we have today. Um, okay, so this is clearly an extremely complex issue. It's going to be really hard to draw tight parallels. But did, did the did the New Deal increase equality among among people, or did it put us on the road toward the inequality that we have now? Well, a lot of people were brought out of dire straits by the New Deal. Um, there still was plenty of inequality, and I would remind us that there was tremendous racial inequality in terms of access, so that even um, an agency like the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was one favorite. of the earliest New Deal programs, it began in the North with integrated camps, but before too long, they were segregated. Um, so, you know, we have to remind ourselves that uh, although there was progress made, there were compromises that Roosevelt made in order to get many of these programs through. But what was so important about the New Deal is that it introduced into people's lives the possibilities of what a federal government could do. Yeah. That's interesting, uh, especially now, because it feels like we're in a time where the federal government is sort of abdicating its power in a way and uh, throwing things back to states in terms of the coronavirus response. Um, when we talk about the New Deal, I'm curious about what were the political circumstances that led to people being up for big reforms? You know, a lot of people say, like, we're so gridlocked now, and we have such deep divisions, and there's just no way that big reforms could happen. Was the government significantly more functional during that time? Well, that's an important Point. Um, I think we have to, first of all, remember that this is taking place over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. um, so Roosevelt was president for 12 years. Right. So it wasn't like it was all just passed at once as soon as Ro Roosevelt got exactly. in. Exactly. Like, here's the deal. Very here's important. The new deal. Yeah. It's, it's very gradual. Um, and some of those things worked and some of them didn't. And when they didn't work, they threw them out and tried something else. So you know, we shouldn't assume that it there was a blueprint that they put into action. Um, they experimented. Mm -hmm. And that's probably one of the most important, you know, lessons to take from the New Deal, that there was not sort of some ideological commitment, um, but rather, you know, a willingness to be improvisational. Does that mean that Roosevelt was a capable and very personal leader who knew how to connect. He had a way to build consensus. Are, are those things required for, for this kind of experimentation and reform to take place? And do we have them now? Well, Franklin Roosevelt was truly an amazing leader, I think. He had had, you know, adversity himself, which I think um, bred compassion mm -hmm. in him. But he was very personable. He was very clever, very articulate, and he was willing to compromise. So, you know, it, it, it's hard to swallow some of the compromises that he made. Right. Some of the compromises so there was sort of increased 
or solidified a lot of racial injustice, right? Yes, exactly. You know, so that um, agricultural and domestic workers were left out of Social Security and out of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, there was a lot of popular support for anti-lynching legislation. He felt he couldn't go there and still hold on to the support of Southern Democrats, which he knew he needed for what he felt was the broader good. So, yeah, he sort of entrenched some of these systems that are still uh, unjust today. Is Does that mean that it's better to wait and not build a implement a big system like that until you can be sure that it is done fairly and justly? Or um, do you act in a moment of crisis like this and try to fix it later? I think that Roosevelt would say that the only way you're going to get these things to change is to be incremental about it. And, you know, it's not a, a view that's all that different from, say, Obama's compromises on, uh, you know, the health provisions, mm -hmm. you know, that will get there with some kind of universal health insurance. But um, we have to start somewhere. Yeah. He was very pragmatic um, and he lived with those compromises. St so much of what you've said about the New Deal r strikes me as ideas that would be very uh, bipartisan today or should be you, you wanting to get people back to work. Everyone wants to work uh what well, at least initially not wanting to go into to, to to grow the national deficit um or to have one at all those are things that it seems like we could do right now get behind that sort of policy is it is it happening well this issue of partisanship is is really interesting um you know, my, the tendency I would have and many of us have is to say we are so far wrong on that. We are so partisan. We can't agree on anything, um, you know, that must have been different in the 1930s for, for FDR to accomplish the New Deal. But actually, he had a lot of opponents. Um, and I'm reminded when I look back at the record how he was fighting people on the left and the right all the time. Right. But he had enormous support. Um, he, his popularity, even at the worst moments, like in the late 1930s after that Roosevelt recession, he still was way over 50% support yeah. um, you know, among the American people. Part of what our problem seems to be today is that we are so divided down the middle that it's very hard for um, an executive to get a program through. Right. So we just keep fighting it out on the boundary. And you're drawing these boundaries, though. I, you know, we're politically divided, but ideologically, there's a lot in common, right? That we do want people that we do want the economy to come back and want there to be jobs and that the, the government can create those jobs if they're in the military or uh, the subset of that, the Space Force, which is happening right now, you can go work for the government. It's not considered a handout. But we don't use those jobs to build infrastructure, to, to uh, you know, build our national parks, to do the things that we could. We could take that lesson from the New Deal. And it seems like movements like Civilian Conservation Corps or something else would not be seen as handouts, but could be seen as, you know, um, thank you for your service type, type positions, jobs that we're creating where people are working, and uh, why th could that actually happen? Well, um, I guess I sort of disagree with you that 
everybody shares the same commitment. I yeah. disagree with Jim all the time. So. <laughs> no. I think they, I, no, I think they, they, everybody wants the economy to come back. But I think that we are very divided on our attitudes towards the role of government. It seems like, you know, the specific policies aren't exactly analogous. The, um, the political situation is not exactly analogous. You wrote about how the New Deal was not just about policy or politics, but kind of about culture, too. And I wonder if that is something that is as malleable today as it was then. Yes, I feel that very strongly, that we have to bridge these divides and that we may be making a little progress on that as we make grocery clerks and package deliverers and Amazon warehouse workers into the heroes of the present moment. But it's got to go further than that. Um, on the part of the New Dealers, I think they started off with commitments to employ people who were really out of work. And many of them were photographers and painters and writers. But what it ultimately became was a really important project to show people how the, the, the whole country was experiencing the depression. So you had photographs from Dor Dorothea Lange, from Walker Evans, um, that gave people a real picture of the suffering that was taking place in Appalachia, in California. And I think that ultimately it did become a way to, um, to build empathy and to help people feel that this was a shared suffering and to then be in, invested in, you know, what the government was doing to really help people. But we, you know, we have been through the culture wars and these divides are great. Though, you know, we shouldn't exaggerate the extent to which they didn't exist then. Mm -hmm. So the 1920s, for example, was a period of, of other culture wars. So we had this one kind of cultural world of rural America, sound familiar, and urban America, which was very different, filled with immigrants, many of whom were viewed as un-American. We had put into law in, the, in 1924 um, new immigration restriction that made it basically impossible for people to come from Eastern and Southern Europe to say you nothing say, of Asia. You say Asia. history doesn't so, repeat itself, but it's really ringing a bell. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, we, we, we can, again, it, I don't know if it's, if it's refreshing and comforting to discover that there were some pretty terrible things that happened in the past as sure, well, sure. but it, 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 we, they did get through it. But, it, but it, there can't be an excuse that things are somehow worse today than they were. Yeah, then. exactly. But, you know, there are new kinds of obstacles. The fact that people get their news from different sources and they get them from many different sources. You know, we, we have a challenge to build sort of a common culture. Right, right. Yeah, just if everyone would listen to this podcast, um, <laughs> we would all be on the same page. <laughs> I would hope so, but we have to keep up our hope. You know, we are fortunate to live in a democracy and hopefully we can um, participate in it come November. Mm -hmm. What's mm -hmm. happening in, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know Hieronymus Bosch? Yeah. 
Jim just learned about Hieronymus Bosch the other day and it's really Yeah, tirelessly really consuming his, his work now. Um, does this feel like we're in a Bosch painting to you? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Uh, I, okay. Um, yeah, no pressure on that one. It's a very weird question. Jim's very excited about about the discovery of Bosch. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to, yeah, to talk really, to us. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for, for spending the time with me. I enjoyed it. Are you really, really troubled by Bosch now? No, 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 no. I just wanted to see if I was the only one who was not familiar with the term offhand. But it sounds like Bosch is really rocking your world. What I, no, no, no. <laughs> what I take away from that is that a lot of talk about um, unity and how we really came together at the time also was very exclusive right. of. Uh, it was unity among maybe the w white men who were in charge of government mm -hmm. on different sides of the political aisle. There was a moment mm -hmm. of unity there. Yep. That's something that makes our time unprecedented in that when we talk about unity, we're, we're really talking about a broader society unity. that works for everyone. Yeah. Right, right. How do we do that? So yeah. we don't have a precedent for that in this country. That's right. The last thing I'll say is I, 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 I just wanted to, I guess, if, if anyone who's listening to this is having, having a hard week, which is reasonable, given what's going on, um, I would direct people toward um, the NAP ministry. I just keep thinking about the NAP ministry. Um, it's run by Trisha Hersey, who she's worked a lot with social justice leaders and sort of how to navigate self-care and rest and restoration, even in times when you feel like the circumstances of the world are demanding that you act. So anyway, I would just encourage people to, to check out the NAP ministry during this time, especially for people who are directly affected by stuff that's going on. Yeah. So uh, I think we're, we're done for the day. We had a heavy history week. Love history. Um, this episode has been produced by Kevin Townsend today. We have, have had help for the last couple months from two wonderful journalists and producers named Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry, and they have been absolutely fantastic. Some of you may have corresponded with them. They've been helping us research and make our conversations more coherent and useful than they would be otherwise. You can only imagine what they would be like if we didn't have Kevin and them helping us. But uh, this is their last week with us, Anna and Jacqueline, and we just wanted to say a big, big thank you to both of them for all of your wonderful work, and it's been lovely to get to work with you. Thank you, Anna and Jacqueline. You are excellent colleagues, and I wish you the best. Write us at socialdistanceattheatlantic.com if you have any thoughts, questions, or concerns, and I hope everyone is taking care of themselves. Talk to you Monday. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Oh, oh, oh. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.